Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed from around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with you, the main part of the podcast will be an interview with Jonathan Powell who, of course, was chief of staff for Tony Blair in Number 10 and indeed in opposition. He met Vladimir Putin many times in very interesting and contrasting situations, deeply experienced about negotiations in seemingly impossible situations, not least uh, the Northern Ireland peace process. And, of course, he worked in uh, Washington as well. So he has a kind of global perspective and many other perspectives. And I thought it was be really fascinating to get his take on the current situation. I interviewed uh, Jonathan when the withdrawal from Afghanistan was beginning in uh, late August, uh, around that August bank holiday period at a festival, and found that so illuminating. So I thought we might all find that interesting. So we'll uh, hear what he has got to say in a moment. We've got some questions. And before all of that, a couple of notices. First of all, King's Place Live uh, Rock and Roll Politics is going to be on Thursday, March the 17th, uh, a special. It's usually on a Monday. We've put one here on March the 17th, the Thursday, to look at the consequences of what is happening unfolding in front of our eyes. It's moving so fast. Not just the horrors of uh, Ukraine, but the consequences. There are many. And uh, if it's okay with all of you, we will explore them on that Thursday night, live at King's Place, and it's streaming live, perhaps for the last time. So do join me for that. And it's also going to be the last live show for a bit. So um, do come along and let's uh, reflect on our, I think it's all our favourite word, consequences of what is being played out in the uh, nightmare of Ukraine. Uh, And just one other notice, thank you all those who've subscribed to Patreon. Please do so if you haven't. Those who have, uh, you should be now or have just got uh, the second bonus podcast on the 1983 election, one which was profound in ways which I think have been overlooked. It was the one that cemented Thatcherism, doomed Labour to opposition for many, many years to come because of the scale of the defeat. But the seeds were sown from 1979. So it gives me the chance to reflect on that election and the consequences arising from it as well. So that should be there. And if you subscribe, you'll get it right away. So you'll have that in the February 74 election and much more to come on that front. So, yeah, thank you. It's great. And um, much appreciated those who've signed on. And please do just click the link which accompanies the blurb to the podcast or uh, just go to Rock and Roll Politics Patreon, something like that anyway your questions to come. Uh, But before that, uh, let's hear about uh, someone who has really seen Putin in his various phases of leadership and has had much more experience of um, international affairs than probably anyone else uh, (laughs) listening to the podcast. I I wouldn't say that, but certainly compared with me. Uh, So I was fascinated to hear the take of Jonathan Powell. Uh, And let's hear that and then we'll come back to your questions. Jonathan Powell, thank you so much for coming in. Could I ask you, you met Putin several times. What was your impression of him during those meetings? Did your impression change over time? Yes, it did. The first time I met Putin was in December 1999, when Tony Blair went to meet him when he was still running for president. He was at the time prime minister. And Yeltsin, who had been extremely brave, but had been a rather unusual sort of president, uh, quite often drunk. Uh, And Tony has this wonderful story. When he first met him in Paris, uh, Yeltsin warmly embraced him, having never met him before. And for the first 10 seconds, Tony thought that was very friendly. After 20 seconds, he was thinking this is a bit odd. After a minute, he thought he'd never get free. So we were dealing with, for the first time with Putin, someone who seemed like a normal potentially a reformer. Uh, he was quite small, quite uh, understated, and he was asking lots of questions. The next time I remember encountering him was when he called up on the day of 9-11 because he couldn't get through to Bush and um, asked how he could help. What should he do? We went uh, to see him shortly after that in Moscow. And again, he was very helpful. He offered to provide intelligence, basing all the rest of it to try and deal with the problem in Afghanistan. 
uh, while telling us that he always told us that Islamist extremists would be a problem. And then um, Tony went back to his dacha and they played pool together and George Bush called them both together uh, for a joint phone call. So to start with, he seemed like something new, something that was going to be able to open up to the West. But over time, I noticed as we went back there, he became more hubristic. He had more aides, more horses, more grooms, more servants, and he seemed to be getting out of touch. Tony had a last meeting with him in 2007 as he was standing down in the margins of the G8 summit. And he decided to tell Putin what he really thought of him. Uh, so he asked for a meeting alone. So it was just a Russian interpreter, Tony, Putin and me. And Tony told him what he thought about killing people on our streets using nuclear material and about what he thought about the autocracy. And Putin gave it back in a very vicious way, saying we didn't really care about them killing dissidents in our country, etc. And I could see then someone who was, not surprisingly perhaps, living in an autocracy and cut off and now having done it for 22 years, you're dealing with someone who really has an alternative reality, especially after the last two years of COVID. That raises all kinds of interesting questions about the degree to which a figure can change. But do you sense that from the beginning, he has been consistent in his view that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a catastrophe and that one way or another, he had always had some kind of idea that he would try and bring it back together again? Or do you sense this is a product of recent hubristic years? Well, I think that one thing that is certainly uniform across that time is his cynicism. Uh, He always had, and still clearly does have, the cynical mindset of an intelligence operative, particularly from the... uh, Russian uh, com- uh, communist system, someone left over from the KGB. And so he sees all sorts of plots and plans by the West that don't really exist. That is one clear part of it. He clearly has always thought the collapse of the Soviet Union was, or the Russian Empire more correctly, was a disaster, and he would love to see that reversed. I don't think he probably thought that was possible, at least not possible in this way, when he was initially president. But I do think he's become hubristic over time. And that's why he believes probably that the Ukrainian people would welcome him in because they're one people with the Russians. And I wonder if the uh, his underlings dare tell him now that they're not, that they are actually telling him to get lost uh, in every way possible. So your reading of it is that of the miscalculations made by him, one really was that he thought the troops from Russia would be seen as liberators. Did, was he so cut off from the mood in Ukraine to believe that? Do you think? I think so. He hasn't been there, obviously, for a very long period of time. He's relying on aides who are scared of him around him, who are telling him what he wants to hear. He has this sort of mystic nationalist uh, view that they're one people, one religion and all the rest of it. So yes, I think that's exactly what he what he thinks. And I think, as I said, the two years of being cut off from COVID on top of 22 years of running a dictatorship leaves you very cut off. You think of Mrs. Thatcher in the end of her time in office. Uh, she was becoming a little bit odd when she because she'd been so cut off by being prime minister. And that's what happens. It's why many countries have term limits. But if you've been there for 22 years, and particularly in a dictatorship, you become really very uh, cut off and living in a very odd uh, alternative world. Now, you've been involved in negotiations which seemed impossible. It was fascinating watching you and others move towards the Good Friday Agreement and beyond with people with wholly incompatible objectives, apparently. And you've written many times and fascinatingly about uh, how you (laughs) bridge those gaps. Have you got any sense? For example, Macron uh, had two hours with Putin on the phone the other day and is keeping a dialogue going. Is there purpose in those kind of dialogues? Can you see any space for some form of negotiated ending to this nightmare? Yes. However grim and awful it seems at the moment, the most probable way this will end eventually will be through a negotiation. It might not be a negotiation with Putin. Maybe Putin will go. Maybe he will fall because of this. And when you hear people like Kordakovsky and others saying that's going to happen, I think there's some truth to that. But they point out it won't happen imminently. It will be over time. And we should remember what happened to Milosevic after we uh, took military action in Kosovo uh, and defeated the Serbs there. Uh, He was then brought down by his own people. And Putin will be very conscious of that precedent 
uh, and very worried about it. So it may not be a negotiation with Putin, but it will, I think, be a negotiation in the end. And I think there are three strands to this negotiation. The first is the negotiations that are still happening between the Ukrainian government and the Russians. You know, Putin has denounced uh, Zelensky as a Nazi, bizarrely, given uh, his Jewish antecedents and the fact he was elected by 70% of the people. Um, but they, he is still negotiating with his negotiators. Now, the negotiations on humanitarian channels have so far failed, but there is still a way of communicating and they can discuss the other issues that need to be discussed. So that's one glimmer of hope. And any negotiations that happen must involve the Ukrainians. They should not be excluded from negotiations on this, as has too often happened in the past. The second possibility is a third party. As you say, uh, President Macron has been calling Putin fairly regularly and Putin has been calling him. And you'll remember President Sarkozy rushed in after the five-day blitzkrieg in Georgia when Putin tried to topple the Georgian mm -hmm. government uh, and negotiated peace. So there's certainly a room for a third party. Other possibilities are the Israeli uh, prime minister who was recently in Moscow and then spoke to Zelensky and then to the Europeans. And of course, China, perhaps the most important possible player, because China is the one country that could uh, bring Putin to behave. So that's a, another aspect of the third party uh, way that negotiations might happen. And then thirdly is, of course, the United States itself. The United States is the power uh, Putin wants to talk to. He wants to feel is the top table that is on equal standing with the US president, despite the tiny size of his economy. So I think we should look also at that possibility. At some stage, we're going to need to have new European security structures into which any agreement about Ukraine can fit. Uh, there won't be a sort of freestanding agreement just about Ukraine. The need to, we need to rebuild some of those uh, um, threads that tied down the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I myself worked at the time on the conventional weapons agreements in Europe, which was a crucial agreement which tied down what you could do with your conventional forces, where you could put them and gave you transparency, which would have prevented Russia doing what it's doing now. We got rid of it when the, Cold, when the uh, Warsaw Pact disintegrated. We need another conventional weapons agreement. We need an INF agreement, agreement on intermediate nuclear forces and particularly tactical forces where there must be a real danger that Putin might use tactical uh, nuclear weapons. And we need wider agreements between NATO uh, and Russia. So all of that needs to be negotiated and that will have to be negotiated with the US and with NATO more generally. So I see that's where the uh, negotiation thread is likely to happen in the end. And when you say in the end... What kind of time scale? I, I know it's impossible to be remotely precise about this because no one quite knows what's going to happen next. But what do you mean roughly by in the end? Well, I've, I've no idea in terms of time, but there's a thing academic talk about, which is actually born out in my experience of what 25 years of dealing with this type of negotiation, or maybe longer, I suppose, if I include interstate negotiations. And that is they rarely work until you have what's called a mutually hurting stalemate. That means not just there's a stalemate, but actually both sides are hurting from it. Now, we're still some way off that because the Russians think they can just demolish the cities in the way that uh, Putin did in Grozny, in Aleppo, and a whole bunch of other places. He thinks he can just keep going and gradually steamroller Ukraine into submission. So he's not giving up yet. And the Ukrainian people and, Prime Minister and President have shown most remarkable bravery and they clearly are not giving up at any stage to the Russians, whatever happens. So at the moment, we do not have a mutually hurting stalemate. We, it's hurting on the Ukrainian side. It is hurting on the Russian side. But the Russian people, of course, are not seeing that because they don't know about the losses they've suffered or the rejection they've faced by the Ukrainian people. But at some stage, we will get to this mutually hurting stalemate, and that will give us a chance to get some of these negotiations going. But the important thing is to have those channels open, which is why I think it's so important. We still, as of today, and today is uh, another meeting happening on it between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And it's interesting to hear your take on Macron, because as you know, he's been criticised by some here in the UK. You know, there have been comparisons made with the naivety of Chamberlain and appeasement. But, but my understanding of what you were saying is that that is quite an important channel. The, the Macron-Putin dialogue, potentially anyway? Well, I think this, that shows a complete misunderstanding about appeasement. The problem of appeasement was not talking to Hitler. Talking to Hitler to avoid a Second World War was absolutely very sensible. The problem was the naivety that Chamberlain had, and he thought he could be bought off with a chunk of Czechoslovakia, where in fact he wanted the whole of Czechoslovakia and then wanted Austria and wanted uh, Poland too. So it was a misunderstanding of the interlocutor and the unwillingness to actually show some steel 
Now, I think having a channel, having a way of talking to Putin is worth doing. Clearly, Biden's not going to be prepared to talk to him at the current stage, nor do I think he should. But I think Macron doing so serves a useful purpose. What would be terrible would be if he suddenly rushed off and tried to cut a deal without consulting the Ukrainians and made all sorts of concessions about NATO membership, EU membership and the role of Ukraine. But I don't think he will do that. Is there something, I I know the parallels are very limited, obviously, but when you were negotiating uh, in Northern Ireland, each side had to feel they got something from it, obviously, or else you wouldn't have got agreement. Does there have to be space? I mean, I keep on reading, you know, from British ministers, others, Putin must fail and all the rest of it. Does there need to be some space for him to claim that he has, in inverted commas, won or at least not failed? And what is that space? Well, um, there are two aspects to that. On the one hand, we don't want to do anything that keeps Putin in power uh, against the will of his people. So we shouldn't do anything that reinforces Putin's position and allows him to claim he enjoyed some great victory. And because he can still bamboozle his people by controlling all information that they get, we need to be careful about that. He can't actually win in any objective sense, nor can we undo the extraordinary bravery of the Ukrainians by suddenly giving away something on behalf of the Ukrainians that they have fought to maintain. That said, yes, of course, any lasting agreement needs to involve concessions on both parts. And interestingly, if you look at the interview with the chief Ukrainian negotiator, he is indicating willingness to talk about things like membership of NATO. He's prepared to concede that. He says, why would we die for something which NATO says we're not going to be able to have anyway? So I think you can imagine what the zone of a possible agreement might be. It's not impossible. We must not reward Putin for his um, aggression. But we will have to find some way of him saving face if we want him to stop mass murdering so many people. Although this does raise the very difficult issue of justice. I mean, the ICC and ICJ are looking at Putin's case. And would we actually want to let him off the hook for the war crimes he has patently already committed? This will be a very difficult issue when it comes to negotiations. How worried are you about escalation? and the nuclear dimension to all of this. It seems from your assessment of uh, Putin that you recognised a sort of increasingly insular, hubristic figure, perhaps made more dangerous by what he did in Syria and so on. But do you think he would contemplate using a nuclear weapon in this context? It's obviously very difficult to know. There is one possibility, which is him uh, using a tactical nuclear weapon. And it's important to bear in mind that Russian military doctrine integrates tactical nuclear weapons into what they do on the conventional field. So their forces in Ukraine will have access to tactical nuclear weapons and the possibility to use them. And I think we need to think quite hard, what would we do if he used a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine? And if he used it, for example, to decimate a city, are we just going to stand by and let that happen? Or are we going to take action in those circumstances? Then there's the wider issue of whether he escalates geographically. If he starts moving into Moldova, which is very vulnerable, there are already a lot of Russian forces in Transnistria, right on the, uh, well, actually part of Moldova, occupied by the Russians, uh, and of course Georgia, and then NATO itself. I think if he actually touched NATO, if he moved into Poland or the Baltics, clearly we would be into a world war in those circumstances. And then lastly, there's strategic nuclear weapons. Is there the chance that he's going to do something with those? Now, he has almost throughout his time, certainly since he was sort of open to the West uh, and ceased to be about 2003, 2004, um, he has always referred to Russia's nuclear weapons. He likes to talk about them, and he's done so again. And I think the Americans are quite right. We shouldn't let ourselves be panicked by him talking about them. He hasn't moved any of them. He hasn't put any of them on greater alert than they were before. So I don't think he is probably... I don't think he's actually mad. People who talk about him being mad and um, uh, bringing about uh, the destruction of himself and his country as well as the rest of us, I don't think that's likely. I don't think he's mad. He's just living in an alternative reality that comes of being isolated for, for so long. So I think the use of strategic nuclear weapons is quite unlikely, but those other methods of escalation are possible, and I think we should be prepared for those and do everything we can to give him an off-ramp so he doesn't go down that route. Could I just ask you about British foreign policy. I mean, things are moving so fast. Germany now is going to be uh, militarily far more formidable with the announcements already made about defence spending in Germany. 
I spoke to one Brexiteer within the government who says, we've obviously got to rethink everything. The, the, the whole focus a couple of years ago on the Pacific and when global Britain was being hailed and boat being sent to the Pacific and so on as a symbol of this new relationship and Europe sort of almost being pushed to one side. Uh, Do you sense that events are going to have to propel the government here almost to focus more on working with France and Germany on defence issues, on energy issues, in a way that it was clearly not planning to do in the post-Brexit era? Or is that kind of Remainer kind of fantasy thinking. No, the strategic review was always ridiculous from that point of view. It actually devoted more words to our relations with Antarctica than it did to our relations with Germany, uh, which is a quite extraordinary way of looking at things. And the whole notion that we were suddenly going to be a player in Asia Pacific, again, is nonsense. Geographically, we happen to be located in Europe. Uh, We can't have a global policy unless we have a European policy. And it was because Brexit made it too difficult for the Conservative government to talk about relations with Europe. Uh, I've actually written about this. We need to be, even before this, to be embracing Europe because Russia was always the main threat to us, not China. Uh, And we needed to be prepared for that. And there are all sorts of uh, opportunities for us. In the Brexit negotiations, the Europeans offered to negotiate a new structured relationship on foreign policy and defence. And our negotiators, David Frost, walked away from it, so they weren't interested. Uh, and they've done nothing to pick that up. And we can't do this just with France and Germany, I'm afraid. This is going to have to be with the EU as a whole. And the tragedy is that just as we've left the EU, the EU is suddenly taking on the role that we'd always wanted it to take on. Germany's decided to start spending money properly on defence. It's taken a robust attitude towards Russia. France is uh, gearing its muscles. Even countries like Denmark are playing really uh, major roles. And we're isolated from all that. We can't have any influence on that. So just as the EU comes together... We're outside it. So we're unable to play the full role that we w- would like to. At the same time, we've run down our armed forces. They're still extremely good armed forces, but they're just very, very small. Uh, and therefore, there's a limit to what we can do with them, certainly by ourselves. So we're going to have to find a way of reintegrating our foreign policy and defence with Europe, and we're going to have to do it double quick. And finally, I mean, you must have reflected in the last few days about uh, so many aspects of this, but I was wondering... Obviously, you've reflected a lot about Iraq and all the rest of it. Do you think retrospectively, at least I'm not going to ask you about the the war in Iraq beyond this, that a huge focus post-September the 11th was Saddam and the threat posed by him, we must stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, that there in front of our eyes was Putin and Russia with its nuclear weapons and that the the focus was in the wrong place in terms of the threat to the world or do you sense that putin really has changed profoundly from someone who genuinely was willing to work with the west say post september the 11th to the figure we see today that a figure is capable of such a leap that it was okay at the time not to be focused almost solely on the threat posed by Putin's Russia? I think we made a really fundamental mistake, a missed opportunity in the 1990s and 2000s. We had an opportunity, particularly in the 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, to really embrace Russia, to hug them tight, and we'd missed it. It wasn't entirely our fault. The Russians, uh, when we set up the new uh, NATO-Russia relationship, didn't really play ball. But we just thought it was all not that serious. We called them upper volta with nuclear weapons. We didn't take into account their desire to be at the top table. I mean, we did, Tony Blair did establish the G8 so they could be at the table, but we didn't do enough. We should have made more of an effort to embrace them. And I think there was a realistic possibility post-Cold War that we could have brought Russia as well as Eastern Europe into our uh, embrace, just as Ukraine, for example, has done so. So I think we made a missed, we had a missed opportunity there. But once things started to go sour with Putin and with Russia, and as he took steps around the world from Libya and Syria and elsewhere to be more militaristic and more adventurist, I think we failed to see the threat that was rising and we failed to prepare for it properly. You know, we didn't really think through what would happen in Ukraine. We didn't believe he would actually invade it full scale like this, as opposed to nipping off a bit at the edge in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and, of course, Crimea. 
So I think we made two mistakes. One, we didn't embrace them warmly enough to start with. And secondly, we didn't focus them on the defense, on, on, on the threat. And that's why I say, if you look at the strategic review of last year, it's rather extraordinary that it hardly talks about Russia as the threat and preparing for it. When you have Boris Johnson saying we don't need tanks anymore, just when we were about to face this major threat. And I think that was a, a really major mistake. Jonathan, thank you so much for the time. I, we've overrun. Do you mind me asking one more question? Because in the summer, I did a fascinating interview with you at a festival when Afghanistan was the overwhelming story. And I read that under the sort of radar of Ukraine, it, it's really bleak there. Is it as bleak as we read? One um, issue about Ukraine is that you know, I find myself completely obsessed with Ukraine. I, I find myself following the news minute by minute uh, all day. Yeah, but yeah. we shouldn't blind us in the fact that we have a whole series of other conflicts where people are suffering terribly. Uh, obviously, Afghanistan, also places like Myanmar. People don't think about the people in Myanmar who are having their villages burnt to the ground by the um, military who've taken over. Starvation, the crashing of the economy, uh, shelling refugees as they try and leave the country. Ukraine is not the only place this is happening, and we really should bear in mind uh, those other threats. The situation in Afghanistan is catastrophic. The fate of the people, where um, over 90% of them now are, are um, uh, short of food, uh, is, is really serious. And no one wants to talk about Afghanistan now. We pulled out, we were defeated. And so everyone wants to forget about it and take no responsibility. That is irresponsible. We have to play a role in Afghanistan. It is not in our interest, let alone the interest of the poor people uh, who we uh, were governing essentially for 20 years, that we should abandon them. And I really think even with Ukraine, we have to bear in mind what's happening in Afghanistan. We have to be ready to help. And although we don't want to um, entrench the Taliban in power, we should be trying to encourage them to think about forming a broad-based administration, bringing in the other ethnic groups, the other political tendencies. If we don't, we're going to really rue the day that we failed to do so. Jonathan Powell, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So that was Jonathan Powell speaking to me about the situation in Ukraine and then at the end in Afghanistan. It's important to remember that, uh, as Jonathan was saying, you, you focus every hour, every minute on uh, Ukraine. It's very hard to turn away. Uh, and Twitter draws you in as well. And there's a sort of feverish hysteria on Twitter as well as uh, fantastically illuminating information. But it does therefore obscure some of these other events that are taking place and unfolding. Isn't it amazing, the new cycle at the moment? When I interviewed uh, Jonathan Powell for this festival, it was called the Beyond Borders Festival in, in the August bank holiday weekend, Afghanistan was the overwhelming story and appeared to be uh, one that would run for many months, the consequences of that sudden Biden-led withdrawal implications for the UK and so on. And now, with those consequences being played out, it's overwhelmed by Ukraine. And there are other examples of that too. Anyway, let's now move on to your questions. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. The first one is from John Booth in South Wales. He says, this is my first email to you, but I've been listening to your podcast for a year or two. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you very much. John says he went to the Ukraine demonstration in Trafalgar Square on Saturday. And he has two questions. Firstly, I would have thought that Keir Starmer would have demanded that the government set about increasing defence spending which would probably go down well in the red wall seats. The likely problem is that that might cause problems within his own party. How should Labour approach the Ukraine problem? My second question is, what on earth is the government doing? There are allegations that the Conservatives have taken £2 million of donations with Russian connections. That, together with going slowly on a London grad and sanctions, looks terrible. 
Is it incompetence or something worse? Uh, In terms of the Labour Party, almost certainly defence spending will go up anyway. The challenge Starmer has about spending is if he calls for a rise in defence spending, he will have to say how it is paid for. Now, I suspect there will be increases and I suspect it will be paid for out of borrowing because uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, he's already putting taxes up in April, so he can't put up taxes anymore. There are limits to how much cuts could be taken elsewhere. Explain where the cuts would come to pay for increases in defence spending. Uh, But for a Labour leader to sort of, you know, the the Starmer's um, green strategy involves borrowing many billions of pounds. It's a potentially very radical uh, policy. I think it's £28 billion they're pledged to spend. And they're saying they're going to do it through borrowing. So there's a limit to how much in opposition you can do it without, uh, certainly with Labour being accused of being fiscally irresponsible. So Labour sort of have a peripheral role to play, frankly, in the Ukraine situation. But there is a political expedient for Starmer to appear prime ministerial and for Labour to uh, show that it takes the situation with the gravity that it clearly (laughs) requires. Um, He's obviously using it to continue the, you know, this is not Corbyn era and to show unity. But within that unity, there is the space, and he's used it to some extent, to raise questions about why sanctions aren't moving more speedily. What about the oligarchs? But I say Labour kind of, you know, this is so huge and global. Beyond that, I think there are limits to what Labour's role in in all of this. Uh, Oh, on the other one, there had become such a sort of culture of look at Britain open to the world. I remember when George Osborne opened his budgets, you know, about austerity and his tough rules, you know, and his plan and I've got an economic plan. He would always say, this shows that Britain is open to the world again. And that included Russia and Russian money. And they've been resistant to closing that off and saying that is where Britain is closed. Now, obviously, that's changed one of the many, many consequences for Britain in this speedily changing global situation is that that no longer applies. But the government is having to, like all of us, adjust its mental furniture. You know, suddenly, you know, on Monday, it was, I think Nick Robinson said that they'd only let in, the UK government only let in 50 people from Ukraine. Not long ago, they would be parading this uh, rigidity in relation to our borders. Now they flap around changing the policy, not quite sure what to do, what the policy is. Yeah, we're open well, only if the rules are up and so on. On all these issues where certain orthodoxies were in place, they're completely up in the air. And this government is not being that nimble-footed in uh, addressing them. Thank you, John. Denise Willier focuses on soft power. And this, in a way, given rightly in my view, Johnson has ruled out being part of some no-fly zone. This is crucial. You know, you can use economic powers, although my worry about uh, the sanctions is it's sort of, this is the great conundrum. The sanctions will hurt uh, and, and over time hurt hugely. But at the same time, they will kind of reinforce Putin's paranoia about the West. So it sort of kind of confirms his view, oh, yeah, the West don't respect Russia, they're out to get Russia and all the rest of it, whilst hurting. However, soft power can be subtly effective in ways that transcend all those concerns. So Denise points out it's, it's, it's a good list in reminding us, you know, kind of what we've, again, I think the pre-Ukraine invasion era. The Foreign Office, one of whose key purposes is to promote Britain's interests and image abroad, cutting its staff by 20%. Uh, One of the most visible soft power tools, overseas aid has been cut from 0.7% to 0.5% of gross national income. The BBC, which uh, the integrated review called the world's most trusted broadcaster, I think you mean the government's integrated review, uh, reaching 468 million people is braced for budget cuts. It's already suffered many cuts already. The British Council has had its budget slashed, uh, leading to 20 offices and 20% of its staff being lost. 
Johnson has reportedly opted to outsource oversight of Britain's new Turing Student Exchange Scheme, historically run by the British Council to a private contractor, creating an even bigger hole in its finances. They all sound, I suspect, even to some in this government, dated uh, that approach. It was quite interesting. Uh, Nadine Doris, when praising the courage of some BBC reporters, apparently, you know, I read that she had a tear in her eye as she praised the courage of these people out in Ukraine. A few weeks ago, when she was trying to save Boris Johnson's skin, she targeted the BBC to please Tory MPs. So, that attack, such a false economy, saving hapenies here and there on the influence of Britain as a soft power force, seems so counterproductive now. And as I say, it has a dated air. It's really worth revisiting at some point. We must do this as a podcast. Remember, the government was committed to 0.7% in its manifesto, how it got to 0.5%, the role of Rishi Sunak and other things, um, but for another time. But it's a very good point. Thank you, Denise. Noah Keat, wondering about the government's desire to focus on more domestic energy security to prevent any British reliance on Russian gas. However, I wonder how that squares with their net zero target, given this would require fracking as renewables are for, uh, from wholly reliable, are far from wholly reliable. They've ruled fracking out, Noah, unequivocally. Uh, some Tory MPs want them to revisit fracking, um, but I've got a feeling they're not going to do that. Uh, even nuclear energy, which I strongly support, requires mining uranium for generating energy. I think they're going to focus a lot on that, actually. And Noah says, what do you think the government's response should be given the huge increase in prices we will already see? This is going to be a major sub-theme of the crisis. Obviously, the main focus will be on the crisis, the invasion of Ukraine. The repercussions are historic for Britain, for Europe, for the US, and so on. And that's one of the challenges for Europe. There is going to be now, um, it's interesting, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng is saying, look, for Britain, it's not a supply issue, it's a price issue. And it is because Britain is not dependent on Russian uh, importing of gas. But given that Germany is going to end a lot of its importing of Russian gas, they too will be looking for the same supplies as the UK. That, at the very least, will make the price soar, as Kwarteng, Kwarteng says. But you're making a different point, Noah, about zero carbon. There will be huge pressure. Uh, I think, from perhaps within the cabinet, certainly from Tory MPs, to relax that target. Johnson made so much of it at the uh, Glasgow summit last year that he, uh, he, I think, will find it difficult to do. Um, But I suspect what we will find is that, you know, the one thing about targets, although actually it's a very ambitious target, it's still a relatively distant one. And I wonder whether it will be just without pronounced slower in its uh, moves towards it. Labour, I think, will remain firmly committed to it for all kinds of reasons. But yeah, I do think there will be a focus on nuclear power and other sources, but not fracking. They seem to have unequivocally ruled that out. But energy is going to be a huge, huge story on several different levels, supply, cost. It's quite interesting in France, uh, uh, Macron is offering much bigger subsidies to energy bills than Britain. Um, All kinds of, and and so will Sunak succumb? If so, where does that leave his kind of strategy of fiscal conservatism and fiscal responsibility, as he would call it? There are so many, oh, you've got to come to King's Space, the consequences are just so vast. Things are, are changing in all kinds of ways. Of course, the horror, the horror, the horror is our main focus, but the, the consequences are intense and epoch-changing, actually. Um, in ways, by the way, I think probably September the 11th weren't. You know, in September the 11th, Tony Blair said the kaleidoscope has changed, has it not? And um, Well, actually... It hadn't that much in retrospect. I think the kaleidoscope is changing in front of our eyes now. Mark Hawes, yeah, this, let's go on to a, a different topic recently. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I'm getting a lot of emails about tuition fees. 
whether the coalition had some justification in putting them up. Somebody said it wasn't a 900% increase because it was £3,000. Sorry. Well, you know, uh, I thought it, it was a threefold increase, 300% increase, 3000 to 9000 Someone says my maths is wrong on that. Well, it was, you know, it was 3000 It became 9000 Three times three is nine. Anyway. I argued that they should come down, but there is a case for co-payments. The leap was far, far too high. Um, but the co-payment empowers students. Anyway, Mark Hawes writes, uh, listening to your last podcast while walking the mountain trails around my home in Verbier. Wow. I hope you were able to enjoy the mountain views whilst reflecting on tuition fees and all the and some of the horrors of the world. Um, I was intrigued by your comment that you're a fan of co-payments for tuition fees and in other areas. I wonder if these areas include medical treatment in the NHS. I'm aware of the quasi-religious status of the NHS in the UK, but it's always seemed a shame that it appears impossible to have a sensible conversation on the possibility of introducing small but effective contributions from patients. I use the term effective in the sense that a small charge would be could be dissuasive to time wasters and others who abuse the system, and thus for perhaps the first time target demand rather than just supply issues. Let me come, Mark Harrison, on a different subject, permit me on observation after reading the Prime Minister's, I passed the book around to other Swiss and British friends who enjoyed it. Ah, thank you. Uh, Tell them to buy it now, Mark. On finishing the Prime Minister's we never had, I found it more difficult to think of people to whom I should offer it to. And then I realised that it required more of an audience of political aficionados. Tell the aficionados to buy it. Don't give it to a Mark. Tell them to buy it. They'll get huge pleasure from it. Read it. They can read it up a mountain with you. You can have a discussion on a mountain walk about the book. On co-payments, yeah, I am a, I do think it could be ex- extended to the NHS. And I think that would be one of the uh, benefits, that there would be less abuse of the system. Uh, you, you can't overplay that. But I think that would be one impact. It would also, more importantly, pay for the resources we need. And uh, you see this NHS insurance rise that's going to pay for the part of the uh, shortfall in NHS funding, in theory, is then meant to go over and pay for social care. This is part of what is meant to be Johnson's social care plan. But as ever with him, it's chaotic. He's put up the uh, national insurance uh, to pay for it, but it's going to go on the NHS, not social care, or most of it. If at some point these resources are transferred to social care, is he going to cut the NHS budget? Of course he isn't. But where's the money going to come from, uh, given there's no way he would dare to put up taxes again to pay for it? So I think co-payment is worth exploring in other areas. And I think it can empower a patient as it could and does to some extent empower students. But the level and the targeting is very – the level I think is doable. By the way, none of this will happen. I think the politics of it are too complicated but or, or impossible. But level of co-payments shouldn't be too problematic. How you decide who pays and who is excluded and all the rest of it is it's quite complicated. And some people tell me by the time you've worked out who's excluded and the cost of managing it, it becomes utterly futile in terms of money raised. So there are complications. But in theory, uh, yeah, I, I do – uh, support co-payments. Uh, student grant, Stuart Grant, sorry, student grant, still thinking of tuition fees. Stuart says he uh, recalls the 1990 conservative leadership contest, which took place in the build-up of the first Iraq war, that Thatcher loyalists counselled at the time. Uh, because the nation was on a war footing, it meant that it would absolutely not be the right time to change a prime minister. I suspect that the same argument will be deployed in the coming weeks. Don't put it in the future tense, Stuart. It already is, as Boris Johnson faces more revelations via Sue Gray and quite possibly a police fine. Will he be better able to deploy the argument that it's no time to change a PM given the Ukraine war is ongoing, rather than in Thatcher's case, the first Iraq war hadn't actually started at the point she was toppled? Appreciate your counsel. Yeah. Uh, Oh, before I get to it, Stuart says, P.S. On a lighter note, your union's Jack Socks have now made it through the Brexit supply chain delays. And I look forward to presenting them to you next time I can join you at King's Place. 
This is the most exciting thing that's happened to me in many months. Stuart, some time ago, when I think I was expressing, how can I put it politely, my disdain about uh, Lord Frost and his Union Jack socks. Now, Stuart, uh, Stuart, you're a you're a, a you're a Brexiteer Tory. I can't. I think you are, Stuart. So you probably wear these all the time. But anyway, Stuart has offered to give me my own Union Jack socks, and I'm genuinely excited, and I will wear them with. Uh, Pride, uh, Stuart. So get there, get to King's Place next time and give me my socks and I'll buy you a drink uh, to thank you. On your point, I do think I'd forgotten that the Iraq war hadn't started in 1990. I thought it had when Thatcher was deposed. So uh, there is a big difference. It was clearly going to happen when she was deposed and she was, you know, the absolute cheerleader for it, as you can imagine, actually pushing on the the, the then President Bush. Yet she was still deposed. I think this does feel different. And boy, our number 10 trying to make it feel different, uh, you know, pumping out things like the Prime Minister's six-point plan for Ukraine, portraying him as a great world leader. And although the six points were to put it at its most polite, fairly abstract. It kind of works in some ways. You know, the Mail on Sunday put it on its front page, Johnson's six-point plan for the world, and, you know, some Tory MPs are buying into it. So certainly number 10 are saying this is not the time. It's quite interesting that Starmer did not say in an interview at the weekend uh, that this was necessarily the moment when he was asked whether Johnson should still resign. So he has been given a bit of space via the horror of Ukraine. Um, But it still could go in different ways, actually. Obviously, if the police investigation and Gray report is out in the coming days while the horror is being played out, there is no way they're going to go for him. Underneath this sort of portrayal of Johnson as a world leader, there is still patterns from pre-Ukraine. You know, that there is quite a lot of chaos in the British government's response. You know, how many Ukrainian uh, refugees it's going to allow into the country. That Certainly on Monday, there were sort of three different versions of what was going on. The sanctions, uh, the, the sanctions on oligarchs and so on are still much more sluggish than many Tory MPs think should be the case and so on. And if you put that in with the Lebedev story, the Partygate stuff, it you know, it, it, it won't go away necessarily. But certainly it's given him space that Thatcher didn't get when Heseltine made his move in 1990. And yeah, I wait the Union Jack Sox. Thank you. Finally, we must. Uh, I want to go to France and Dominique Joule, our French correspondent, because it is interesting. You know, we become even in this event of such global significance, we can become a bit insular about what Johnson is doing. You know, and sort of kind of. It, uh, and anyway, she she gives us the French dimension, and she notices a very interesting contrast. One of it, which is Macron is giving quite a lot of national televised addresses about the situation. Now, he's doing that, you know, partly because there's a presidential election looming. But apparently in these addresses, he makes these points, some of which are an interesting contrast to the British government. He says the conflict will be long and will get worse. There will be severe economic consequences for France. That hasn't been spelt out yet in the UK. There was an interesting interview with Alan Duncan, the former minister, who said Britain has got to be careful about sanctioning itself. Well, in effect, sanctions do have a kind of sanction impact on uh, the countries carrying them out. There are consequences for the countries carrying them out. Well, apparently Macron has spelt it out more candidly. The Conseil of Ministers is working on a resilient plan for the nation, Macron has said, quotes resilience. Oh, a resilience plan for the nation, the details of which will be communicated in the coming days. There has been no equivalent resilience plan from uh, Rishi Sunak yet. He explained why he was keeping lines of communication open with Putin something which I've just talked to Jonathan Powell about. He addressed the call for the presidential election to be postponed, saying democracy must not be interfered with. He stated the need for the EU to have its own defence policy. Say defence policy is going to bring, I think, Britain closer to the orbit of Europe in ways that uh, it hadn't planned uh, just 10 days ago. He confirmed that he would be chairing an EU summit next week. Well, that obviously won't be happening 
via a British government. He warned that it will be necessary to increase spending on the defence budget. He underlined that the response is to Putin and not against the Russian people. In fairness, Johnson has made that point. Uh, so we have a mixture of information and outlier consequences and a statement of strategic actions to follow. It's interesting, uh, we haven't had, I mean, Boris Johnson uh, during COVID gave a series of televised broadcasts. He hasn't done that yet. And maybe because he's not entirely clear what he would say in it and, 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 and Britain's role in all of this, as though, as I say, the briefings from Number 10 are absolutely portraying uh, Boris Johnson as the, the almost the pivotal figure and a, a world leader in all of this. I'm not sure, actually, a lot of Conservative MPs are fully buying that. They continue to have their concerns about elements of the British government response. But for now, the leadership crisis is postponed, certainly for another day, if, if it erupts again. Anyway, look, I, there were many other fantastic uh, questions. Maybe we'll have more space next week uh, to return to them. And please do keep them coming in. You know the email address, steverick1414 at iCloud.com. There are so many layers to this that we need to explore and just say, hopefully, uh, some of you will make it to King's Place on March uh, the 17th or what might be one of the last, if not the last of the live streams. Um, so we can explore them in depth then. Uh, but of course, we need to gather here next week um, when who knows what will be in play and in place. Um, and oh, yeah, thank you again for those subscribing to Patreon. Please do and you'll get that 1983. What an election that was uh, with so many consequences. And um, yeah, well, have as good a week as you can with all this bleak news around. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>